0: This week, Ann and Nick are joined by Louis Goldberg and Chris Crane, who all sit down for an internal, hostful conversation as we reflect on 2023 and the evolution of the cannabis and psychedelic spaces. Our four hosts also discuss what they felt were the biggest moments in cannabis and psychedelics in the last year their thoughts on the potential for rescheduling of cannabis in 2024 and what stories they want to see get more attention in the new year. If you have not yet already, make sure to check out our refreshed website over at greenrushpodcast.net, where you can listen to recent shows, dip into our massive archive of past episodes and sign up for our newsletter curated by the KCSA Green Rush team. So sit back and enjoy our end of the year hostful episode featuring Lewis Goldberg, and Donahoe, Nick Opich, and Chris Crane.
1: Welcome to the Green Rush Hosts Fall. I am joined today by Lewis Goldberg, Nick Opich, and Chris Crane to chat about the progress of both cannabis and psychedelics throughout 2023 and what craziness is in store for 2024. Uh, So let's jump right in. So much has happened in cannabis and psychedelics this year already. I know a lot of people joke that a year in cannabis and psychedelics is like seven in real people. terms. (laughs) What are some of the key moments that you remember? Let's start with cannabis. Let's start with Lewis.
2: I would say this was the year that wasn't, right? We started off the year with all of this hope for regulatory reform. We started all this hope for just lots of good stuff to happen. And to me, it feels like it just didn't happen. Like, if we had had this conversation back in December a year ago, I remember talking about, hey, safer is gonna happen. Didn't happen. And hey, we're gonna see other regulatory reforms. And we've got a lot of promise, right? Especially from the Biden administration, we've got the promise of reform, but nothing actually happened. And if you look at, you know, from the market perspective, nothing happened. like we thought we were going to see a lot of M a not so much the biggest deal that we thought we were going to see which was Cresco and Columbia Care, fell apart so I would say if you could you know define 2023 as anything it's the year that happened before 2024 which I do believe we'll see a lot of change
3: I feel like I feel like at least the start of that could have been said in like any of the last four years. <laughs> this was the year things are going to happen. And then they didn't. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. But in fact, I think I wrote a column two years ago calling, what was it, 2021, like the year that nothing happened in cannabis. Or uh, I don't even remember at this point if that was 21 or 22. Um, it, it feels like a little bit of Groundhog Day here.
2: Well, I look, I mean, the reality is a lot happened, right? You know, the same thing that today happened that happened yesterday, which is, more people today legally bought cannabis in this country than bought it yesterday but that's not what this industry is waiting for right i mean this industry is is waiting for this big paradigm shift that will free up the capital markets that will allow for interstate commerce that will allow for this industry to gr- go from you know a 35 plus state um like strange weird universe to okay we're just any other industry but that hasn't happened yet that said there's more weed sold this year than last year more people are coming into the industry to try it anew this year than last year and there's a lot of yawns and a
4: lot of money that's been lost
1: Nick, what do you think?
4: I'm going to not be so negative about it. <laughs> I, for one, I, I think the, the thing that I've been watching most closely and, and has excited me the most is that uh, cannabis has come into Big Ten country. You know, Minnesota and Ohio uh, are, are the newest states to, to legalize uh, cannabis for uh, adult recreational use. And I think that's awesome. You know, they, they're following the footsteps of Michigan and Illinois. Um, those markets still have long ways to go to, you know, being the successful markets that we want them to be. But I think when we look at everything like it, it we started out with the West Coast region um, with California, Oregon, Washington, um, Arizona. I'm going to put on West Coast, even though we don't, aren't really on the coast. Um, kind of being there first, and then everybody's talking about the East. But now that the the, the flyover states, let's call them, um, are are embracing it too, I think that's an important next step um, that that we saw achieved this year. Where you know it, it's a significant amount of states there, and um, I need to book my next flight to Michigan and, and uh, <laughs> go visit my sister in Minneapolis too, um, and go check out what they've got up there. And so I'm excited to be doing that. Well, and with the change in the structure of the Big Ten you are now looking west coast and east coast in yeah. the big 10 because yeah. oregon the big washington Ten ucla it, and it usc
1: they're all always
4: be, be be what it is but uh you know yes. i i think i think that that region of the country's embrace of cannabis is, is another significant step and um it, it sets the footing for i think us to start seeing more growth in, in the next region which i think will be the south you know for years we've been talking about florida Arkansas has been, been leading leading on that. Oklahoma, if we want to call them a Southern um, state now, um, with them moving to the SEC country, you know, uh, I think there's there, there's momentum building for them to be next. And I think the, I would attribute the Midwest's growth on this issue to that.
1: And let's and not Missouri. sleep on Missouri. Yeah, yeah, they went wreck. It seems like so long ago, but February of this year, they turned on that light switch and um, has been a really booming market for that state which is not insignificant
2: um and and there have been baby steps in texas right like
3: baby Baby steps steps for sure (laughs) yeah i mean look here's here's the challenge with some of this and this is more i think looking ahead than looking back at this year is we're like we're starting to run out of ballot initiative states um Mm -hmm. right and only about half the states in the country have a ballot initiative process uh we've passed legalization in a lot of them there are still some that we'll be able to hit right oklahoma Right. Oklahoma's got a ballot initiative process. Arkansas. Right. Both those are medical states that we can go to and get them legal. Florida is going to be the big one, uh, will likely be on the ballot in 2024, although they have a a 60 percent threshold threshold for passage. So I don't think it's a lock that it'll pass. I do think it will uh, if it's on the ballot, but it's harder there. Um, But most of the states in the south and in the heartland, uh, which, you know, don't have legalization and which are you know frankly make up make up the remainder of the states that don't even have medical uh are that way because they have conservative governments that are you know and conservative state legislatures that are not friendly to this issue and they don't have the ballot initiative process that you can use to bypass them right the reason that Arkansas and Oklahoma have led the way in the south is because they were we were able to go directly to the voters to get this passed we still to date have not seen a single Republican led legislature anywhere in the United States passed legalization. All of the legalization uh, laws that have been passed to date through legislatures have been in places like New York and Rhode Island, Connecticut, Illinois was the first, right? Midwest mostly, and really mostly uh, Northeast states and East Coast states um, that are Democratic controlled. You even only have, I believe, one Republican governor who has signed a bill that was passed by the Democratic-controlled legislature, and that was in Vermont, uh, where the Republican governor would probably be a (laughs) moderate Democrat in most red states. Um, So there's, you know, there's some... Progress is still going to happen, but we're starting to get to where it gets a lot more difficult, uh, as we've seen in in terms of, you know, finishing off medical, right? We're getting to a similar place with legalization here.
2: I I think even if um there was the federal descheduling right where the the cannabis was no longer scheduled at all the south would be lagging behind you know it's not like it would it would overnight happen you, prohibition for alcohol was repealed in 1933 and mississippi was the last state to legalize alcohol in 1966 and Kansas was the first, the last state to allow for public bars to be selling in 1987. So, yeah. you know, this is not, e- even if the government, if President Biden said tomorrow, hey, I am going to the executive order. Well, he probably couldn't Yeah. Could. schedule cannabis, right? And that's a whole different argument. Oh, he probably, no, he might, well, yeah, that's a, well, he actually right, might be able to do that. Right. Well, we don't know, but, but like, let's say he did it. Um, it doesn't mean that Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, you know, Texas are going to open their arms and embrace cannabis. It, it just means that they will be able to, but whether they will, who the hell knows? I mean
3: it's- well, thankfully Miss- Mississippi won't be the last state here because they actually have a ballot initiative process. And if we put this on the ballot <laughs> anywhere that has uh, that doesn't have a sixty percent threshold, it'll pass. Basically anywhere, especially if you're running a presidential election. So Mississippi and Alabama will get those. Those are two of the two of the remaining states. Um, but the rest of the South uh, and uh, and and really most of the heartland, those will you know those 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 will be the last ones to go.
4: So Chris, what's it going to take for them to actually you know change? Let's say you know there there is a rescheduling or there is some kind of um, federal legalization and, and the states still don't want to do it. Is there what's going to be the catalyst? Like is it is it college kids on campuses? Um, um, fighting against this issue is it the economic opportunity because the South is so, would be a perfect growing um, region for for a lot of cannabis. You know, in your mind, what do you think the catalyst is? I, I think
3: it'll be economic opportunity. It's definitely not going to be kids on college campuses that are going to sway a bunch of Republican <laughs> legislators in the South. I can feel pretty confident about that. <laughs> um, and this is a former former student organizer. Um, I, no, I think it's economic opportunity, and it's going to frankly, it's going to be the states around them doing it first, right? Like once. Arkansas and Mississippi and Alabama and uh, Oklahoma legalize, uh, which they will, because eventually there will be ballot initiatives in all of those states. Um, Oklahoma probably next year and Arkansas, I, I believe, as well. Um and the states around them, right? The you know Tennessee's and, and North Carolina and Kentucky and um uh, right uh, Georgia even um, right. Once they start seeing all those tax dollars flow out of state into their neighboring states, and they will right that tax that money will flow out of state. People are going to drive. We already see it, right? I mean, the, most- the
1: best dispensaries, yeah, in in Missouri are the ones that are in border.
3: Uh, everywhere, yeah, everywhere. In border,
1: Illinois and yeah, yep.
3: yep. Border dispensaries crush it. I was at a dispensary in Buchanan, Michigan, right on the Indiana border, and they, you know, they're they're absolutely killing it. Um. So these border dispensaries will crush it, and eventually those states are going to realize that, like, hey, this is it's kind of silly for us to be the last holdouts here, and we're losing all this tax revenue. You're going to do it themselves. How long that takes, who knows? Uh, but eventually, right? Whether that's 10 years, five years, 10 years, 25 years from now, right? That's going to happen. These last few states will trickle in.
2: The companies so that I... own these border dispensaries, do they own the real estate or are they long-term leases?
3: I, I think it all depends on the company and the- Just and generally. The
2: I mean, I'm just trying to think because- like,
3: theres I, I don't think there really is. I don't think you could say generally. It, it really depends on the company and the situation. I mean, you got to remember in a lot of these places, the a lot of these municipalities, the zoning is so restrictive- that you, you often have a fairly limited amount of real estate that you could actually use uh, for dispensary. And so, and sometimes that real estate is available for sale and sometimes you can only lease it. Um, so it, it really does vary. I think it, it varies based on company. It varies based on municipality. Um, but I mean, my guess is it would be like almost even in terms of like renting versus owning.
2: Yeah, I, I was literally thinking like for the Missouri state, Dispensaries that are on the border. What happens
3: if Kansas goes legal? Like they they, they lose a lot of revenue. I mean, we've yeah. seen this happen, right? We saw this happen. Right. The, the The best performing store in Illinois, the best performing adult use store in Illinois, um, by a pretty wide margin, my, is my understanding, was the Ascend store um, uh, in in Southern Illinois. That was the closest one to St. Louis. They were doing they were doing like a million dollars a week at their peak out of that store, uh, in, in top line revenue. Um, right. That store is not a super high performing store anymore, uh, because Missouri is now legal and people in St. Louis can buy it in St. Louis instead of driving North, uh, you know, half hour or so to the border. So, um, yeah, we see that all. I mean, we, we, we see that happening, right. Those stores have a shelf life in terms of the like ridiculous revenues that they can see. You
1: know, we talked, we, we talked about kind of what we're thinking, 2023 was in the year of ca- in in the year of cannabis, and we danced around it, but we didn't really mention the HHS memo recommendation memo to the DEA uh, for uh, recommending uh, that cannabis be rescheduled from Schedule One to Schedule Three. Um, and then the other thing um, that we didn't really talk about that's been just this black cloud hanging over the industry is just the the illicit market and the 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 it's bigger than ever. I mean today. You know the LA Times front page was, you know, a cover story on um, the the founder of Sizzy, you know, owning being a landlord for a bunch of illicit dispensaries. He said he didn't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know. How you don't know that? <laughs> um, But I mean, it, it's it's so in your face. I mean, we were all in New York City uh, last week, and like, you know, it's it's there. Um, and it's been, you know, something that we, it's everywhere. And, um, I don't know, I just, the, the fact that it is so, um, and I think it's also a result of how we do our jobs. Like we, you know, our, we work to normalize it and to not stigmatize it anymore. Um, so it really is just everywhere and in your face. And there's no way for, a a normie consumer to walk in and be like, Ask the questions like, "Are you regulated? Do you have a license to be here? Are you paying your taxes?" Like they're not going to do that. Um, so I think this this illicit market problem is is the worst I've ever experienced in my years of doing this.
3: Yeah. I- I, so, I mean, a few. If, if, <laughs> you brought up a few things there. I mean, just real quick on the HHS memo, I actually think that's that was the biggest thing that happened this year. Mm-hmm. Um, And yes, it hasn't resulted in anything concrete yet, but it's the first time you had a a, a federal agency definitively declare that cannabis is misscheduled and should be, uh, in this case, rescheduled right to a lower classification. That's a very big deal. Obviously, whatever happens. um, uh, with the DEA is, I mean, that's the next big thing, right? And we'll talk mm-hmm. about that, I think, more later when we talk about next year. But that's that's what we got to be looking out for. The illicit market stuff is interesting because it is somewhat dependent on where you live, right? It is extremely acute in New York, uh, New Jersey to a somewhat lesser degree, but still a big deal, right, where you see these illicit stores. It is a Bit of an issue, or not a bit of an issue. It's an issue in California, not mm-hmm. to the degree, not necessarily to the degree it is in in you know New York, where it's out it's out there in, in your face in these in terms of these illicit storefronts. It's not that big of a deal in Illinois, in Missouri, in mostly, like you don't see those stores in Chicago, um, right? So it's a bit of a regional issue in terms of some states have helped now. You still have the issue with the illicit market, just in general, right? Plenty of people are still getting it from friends, friends who grow it, sell it to each other, right? That that's still going on everywhere, um, and they are in most cases able to undercut the legal the legal market pricing. I actually think the bigger issue here is the it's not even the legal gray market; it's the legal hemp derivative, mm. into, the intoxicating cannabinoid market, right? Yeah. Hemp der, hemp derived mm. intoxicating cannabinoid market. Um, I mean you you are now at the point where you go by head shops smoke shops everywhere in the country gas stations mm-hmm. and they're selling Delta eight bud, right? Or, and in some cases now Delta nine, not necessarily Delta nine bud, but Delta nine vapes and Delta nine edibles, right? That are grow that, you know, where the, where the Delta nine is extracted from hemp, right? Where it's it's grown in less than 0.3% THC, but you grow enough of it in large fields, you can extract it. You could put that Delta nine into vape cartridges and uh, edibles and whatnot. And you see that now literally in gas stations and bodegas and smoke shops everywhere. Um, and that Delta nine is the same chemical compound as the Delta nine THC in the cannabis that in the cannabis products that we get. If you get distillate, that's basically just Delta nine. Um, right. And you mean, I, you know, I just drove by a store the other day in Chicago, right by my house, this big sign Delta eight, nine and 10 right? And this is just a smoke shop. It's everywhere. They don't have to abide by the same regulations as the legal cannabis industry. They don't have to have the same security requirements. They don't have the same testing requirements. They don't have licensing fees. They don't have to go through lotteries or competitive application processes, all of the the regulatory hurdles that the legal industry has to go through. And they can sell it just in regular stores. And it's perfectly legal. Um, it, It is on one hand, it is, I think, the biggest competitive threat to the legal market today um, or the legal cannabis markets today i think it also it it, it also demonstrates publicly the insanity of our current cannabis laws and regulations mm-hmm. in terms of how ridiculously overregulated we are, in terms of again, our you know, our testing requirements, security requirements, everything else, packaging requirements, all of that. When somebody can walk into a 7-Eleven and buy a Delta 9 vape cartridge that's sitting behind the counter, you know, mm-hmm. basically in reach of children. Yeah, yet- well, wait until somebody dies. Right. And then
2: what will happen is there'll be a backlash against that side of it. Right. Just because they're able to do it now and it's unregulated doesn't mean that there isn't going to be regulation. It's just nobody's paying attention yet because the the money isn't big enough and the threat to public health uh, it's, is it's in big.
1: the billions of dollars, though. I mean, I, yeah.
2: I, it's, it's not aware. It, yeah. I get it. I get it. And I see it everywhere, too. And I also agree that it is it's bullshit. Right. It is really smart people who are gaming the system um, that they look They're not at even the, gaming
3: the system. What they're doing no, no. They looked,
2: at, they, they, they're looked the the they looked the at. They're driving the truck through the ag bill. Right. <laughs> yeah. Through the loophole in the ag bill and saying, all right, we can do this. The problem is somebody like, if you remember back to 2018 when there was the, the vape crisis, right? Where we were seeing people get sick from vape cartridges that were shitty imports from China, that's going to happen again, sadly. I'm not rooting for this. I'm rooting against this. But it's going to happen again. Of course it will. Something's going to happen with one of these companies that they're going to be stressing their plants with arsenic or something or heavy metals of some kind. It's going to get into the bud and people are going to get sick. And then the pendulum will swing back, probably even more restrictive than what's in cannabis. But until then, yeah, I mean, look, this industry is is up against it in every possible way. There, There is nothing that is favoring from a regulatory or just institutional structural perspective, the legal cannabis industry. From its birth, it's been behind the eight ball. It's really, it sucks. It's really a bummer. And again, the good news. So I, I did think of a good, some good news. Chris, you and I were talking about this uh, a week or so ago. Um, drinks, drinking the, the, the liquid form of cannabis has seen a massive increase that we're seeing low dose um, uh, forms of cannabis become more and more accepted by an, uh, an older population that while the younger consumer is chasing the highest percentage of THC, the older consumer is chasing the best experience, which is for sleep or relaxation, and they're doing it through low dose edibles, low dose drinks, and that side of the market is growing
4: much faster than i ever thought it would i always thought drinks were bullshit and they're not and i would add well, that they yeah.
1: got the chemistry right
4: <laughs> yeah and i mean yep. like from from what i've found uh, talking to folks out here in arizona that are becoming more interested is they're actually learning about uh, like the different cannabinoids like my mom was asking me like about cbn versus cbg and you know which one's going to be better for her cuz she read this and she read that and and it was like she, amazing for her to proactively come to me with, with that question. Um, and it was also like, you know, her and her friends get together and they they all have conversations about this. Um, and so I think that like on top of it, I've, I've seen a huge jump in, um, especially here in the Arizona market.
3: Yeah, I think that's that's I think that's right there. There's becoming more awareness. And and both of these things, I think, are a reflection of what has become the fastest growing segment of the market, which is older consumers um right new people who are newer or coming back to cannabis right they they reused it when they were younger they stopped when they had kids because it was illegal and mobile now you know now their kids are out of the house and it's legal again and or not legal again it's le- it's le- it's legal now um and there's new products and you know these older more novice consumers don't want to get super fucked up by and large right mm-hmm. they you know they're, they're looking to go to a- sleep
1: They want to go to sleep or they want a nice, or
3: they want a nice nice buzz, right? Like they, you know, they want something that's going to replace their glass of wine after work um, or, you know, when they're hanging out at home, uh, you know, and they, and, you know, and and they're not looking for a, you know, 30 plus percent, uh, you know, product they're looking or or a, or a 15, 20 milligram gummy. They're looking for a two and a half to five milligram uh, product. And same thing with the CBN, right? They're trying to, they're trying to go to sleep. I mean, I have, Mm -hmm. you know, relatives that were, you know, for years, pretty anti-cannabis. And we just kind of never really talked about what I do, just sort of, you know, they knew, but it was, you know, they knew, but it was sort of unspoken, but like out of respect, right. And in family gatherings, you just don't really talk about it, who I now get CBN gummies for that they take every, you know, you take every night to go to sleep. Uh, Right. So that is, that is a a, a good development. The drinks one is interesting because you have seen an increase in drinks, but it still isn't to the degree that like everybody, or I keep you keep hearing analysts say like this is the year drinks are going to really take off, and it still hasn't really happened. Because there's
1: no distribution. Like you can't ha- like you can't. I don't know. Don't you feel like when you go into a to a dispensary, like the first thing you're thinking of is not drinks?
3: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think it's challenging for dispensaries because it's bulky. It takes yeah. up a ton of storage. Uh, it, cold, it might have to, you, you know, got to keep it cold. Sometimes it's got to be refrigerated. Exactly. I, I actually think though, it's really more of a, a function of the fact that social consumption in particular social consumption in just regular environments so not a cannabis consumption lounge, but like a restaurant, right. Or, or a bar, right. Is still not allowed. I think once that's allowed, once you can go to a restaurant um, and, you know, instead of ordering a bottle of wine for the table, right. You're able to order some sort of cannabis product at the restaurant and that will, Come eventually. I don't know when. I think that's when drinks really take off, right? Because it's it, it it's more familiar. Um, cool. and also and, and also in that environment, you want to be able to dose slowly over a longer period of time while you're having your meal, while you're at a right. bar out hanging out with your friends, right? If you're just buying something at a store, by and large, you're buying it to go home and consume. If I'm coming home to consume, I don't want to sit and drink three or four drinks to get my buzz. I don't take one edible or smoke a half a joint or a bowl, and I'm good, right? I can get high in five minutes. Uh, drinks aren't particularly conducive to well, just getting high if that's your goal. But if it's social and drawn out over a longer period of time in a, in a, in a familiar social environment, that's where I think they really take off
2: which also is a a challenge from a a, a local regulatory perspective because you can't sell alcohol and cannabis in the same facility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yet. So, you know, if, if I'm a restaurant that has a liquor license, am I going to give up my liquor license to get a THC license? Never. Never. Right. But in cities or towns that have limited liquor licenses, maybe, I go after a cannabis license and that's a differentiator right that would be a really interesting thing for like especially a a high-end chef to open up a restaurant in a in a town that has consumption licenses las vegas los angeles um and really create that type of chicago would be great
3: chicago is chicago is one of the most fierce uh cities in the in the country as far as competition for liquor licenses in terms of limited, you know, it's it still, it's still a city that has a limited number of liquor licenses. You see BYOB restaurants all over the place in Chicago because they, you know, there's a limited number of liquor licenses and they can't get them. Um, so, yeah. And uh, I think that's, I think that's a terrific point. I mean, think it's, it's spot on.
2: Can, and can we switch to, to psychedelics? Yeah. Cause this year, I mean, was such Today. a. Today was Today, big. Yeah. <laughs> well, but let's go back because like this whole like where where I think, you know, I argued that this was the the year that really nothing happened, even though a lot happened in cannabis, but like nothing happened. It's the exact opposite in psychedelics. So much has happened this year. Um it, it's really hard. I think we will struggle as this group to encapsulate all of it. Um and I'm gonna pick something. That I don't think um, I'm gonna leave the other two things to you guys. I wanna talk about Sybin, because what I think Sybin has done is really interesting. Sybin has uh, amassed the largest intellectual property portfolio of any of the companies in the psychedelic space. They had their own stuff, and then they went out and bought Small Pharma, which was doing a lot of work in the DMT space and was built initially by an intellectual property attorney. And what Saibin has done is prepare for the paradigm shift that is coming next year. And they've done it on the cheap. Um, They have money. They are a public company. um, uh, They're led by a pharmaceutical executive in Doug Drysdale. Um, They don't have the same. brand or, you know, overhang that some of the other public companies do. I think that very quietly Seidman has positioned itself to trail right behind maps um, in a way that a lot of other people aren't paying attention to that people are sleeping on.
1: Okay. You heard it here first.
2: Yeah. So I didn't, cause there's other (laughs) stuff I know that we're going to talk about, (laughs) but, but I didn't want to be the one to, 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 to jump on that because, they were team efforts, and I don't want. I want you guys to have the opportunity to talk about them.
1: Uh, well, I, one of them. I mean, I mentioned today specifically. We're recording on December twelfth, and um, the Maps Public Benefit Corporation has filed a new drug application uh, to the FDA today, marking the first time ever that a psychedelics has been um, submitted to the FDA. With you know, period, full stop. Um, so, you know, hopefully this means that in the next 6, 8, 12 months, however the FDA decides to work, um, this could be approved for use. I mean, and with that comes all of this other like stuff that comes, you know, the pricing and, you know, getting therapists trained and how are we going to get the product and you know, who's gonna, I I saw some names floating around for like, you know, what are you gonna call the product? And all of this other stuff that commercialization kind of brings to bear here. But I I just don't want that to get lost for how momentous it truly is that this day happened. I mean, we started working with maps like four years ago, I think, Um, and Mm -hmm. this was always, you know, this was Rick's vision from 37 years ago. Um, And it took 37 years to get this done. And I don't know. I I I think it's amazing, and the whole industry deserves to have a cocktail.
4: I, don't I know. mean, just a <laughs> huge year overall for maps, right? Like today today's news, and then going back to I know we touched on it a ton on this podcast, but the success of PS twenty twenty three, and I think mm-hmm. just yep. you know the professionalization for the industry and how successful that conference was um, to, to see, you know, just over the last six months, it's just been awesome for, for that whole team to have achieved all that success. And, you know, I, it creates the opportunity that Matt Lewis is talking about for a Sybin or for an attire or another company to, to follow in those footsteps and really, you know, continue to make an impact on, on how we think about healthcare in the United States. And so, you know, big hand, big hand to that full team, um, over there. Um, but I think Not like kind of building off of that. For me, the biggest thing in psychedelics was just how normalized it started to become like in my regular conversations with with anyone. Like, I feel like when when we first started getting into psychedelics and I was telling people, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm working with like psychedelics companies. It would be like, whoa, that's crazy. Where now you know, we were talking about the illicit market before, like I go to a farmer's market here in Phoenix, and you can get psychedelic mushrooms, like very easy, and they're not trying to hide it. It's it's just like, it, you know, it's risky for them. But anyone and everyone is a customer for them to, to try and get it because people have, you know, either read the stories that like firms like us have helped uh, place in, in major uh, publications about this, or, you know, they're, they're getting curious. Um, and so you know, I think uh, that comes on the heels of, you know, Matt's putting together a big conference that's, you know, talking about research, talking about the culture and, and helping people understand what this looks like. And then, you know, everybody putting out like this this great data um, and, and showing that, you know, this is really, you know, can have a lot of positive changes and a positive effect on, on society. And I think that that's been the biggest thing I've noticed over the, the last 12 months. And yet the the apocalypse for a lot of these smaller public
2: companies has accelerated this year. We have seen a dozen or more companies go out of business just because they couldn't raise money. And while I talked about the wonderful thing that Simon, the smart thing that Simon did in acquiring small pharma, small well, pharma got acquired because they ran out of money. Like they didn't have a dime. So, you know, the the... The investment opportunity, the capital markets—those, those, those doors are closed until Maps gets its uh, approval, and it's it's really tough sledding for
3: these companies. This was always going to happen. I mean, all these—it was—it was, it was kind of crazy. We—I remember talking about this with you guys a couple of years ago. All these companies were going public and getting these crazy valuations, and not one of them actually had a product in the market, um, right? Like everybody went and look the same similar pattern to what happened in cannabis, different circumstances, um, right? But all these companies went public before they were actually ready to go public because they saw it as a way to raise money, which I get, right? All these companies in cannabis went public in the CSC because capital is so difficult to, to, to raise in the US and there was money to be raised by being a public company. But I mean, other than, you know, Probably four or five, like most of these cannabis companies should not be public companies. They're not big enough. Um, And same goes for these psychedelic research companies. They all went public without having a dollar of revenue on their books yet. Well,
2: it's not unusual for a biotech or a pharma company to go public early stage. It is absurd to do it on the CSC. Right? right? Like you do it right. on the NASDAQ because it's a liquid market that allows for institutional investors. That normally happens. Yes. Because it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to a billion dollars to get a drug through phase three commercialization. You can't raise that money on the CSE and you're screwed and stuck in Canada. And, you know, we as a firm counseled many of these companies. Not to go public because we saw what happened with the cannabis companies, and they all looked at us and went uh-huh, and patted us on the head and said, "Thanks for the uh, thanks for the idea, kid." And you know, we know what we're doing, and not so much.
3: But I will say to Nick's point, I, I think it's also spot on. Like the acceptance of psychedelics in general in the in the broader society, and how fast that's happened has been pretty mind-blowing, right? And I say this as somebody who's worked in drug policy now for 25 years, you know, and I will say this was, this is something that has been bubbling below the surface for a long time. Like I remember the SSDP conferences in the, you know, mid-2000s, the DPA conferences in the, in the you know, really throughout the 2000s, going like the early to the late 2000s, whenever they had a psychedelics panel at like the Drug Policy Alliance Conference, it was overflowing, Right. Like they were the by far the best attended panels at these conferences. And this is going back 20 years now. Um, and so the 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 demand was there, but it f- always felt fringy, right? This wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't really mainstream, and the 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 speed at which mainstream society seems to be accepting psychedelics, right? The states are all of a sudden voting mm-hmm. to decriminalize, like it wasn't very long ago that people were, you know, thought of LSD as you know, something that would cause people to, like, jump out windows and think they could fly and, right, and and talk about, you know, flashbacks. And, I mean, it was, you know, LSD was talked about, you know, in, in as scary terms as, you know, crack cocaine and methamphetamines and whatnot. And, like, that has shifted so quickly um, that it is a, I, I'd say, a, a very welcome surprise, a welcome development.
1: I mean, one yeah. of our oh, – go ahead, Louis. One of our next couple of questions here are what are the, what is a story or a topic in either space that you think needs more attention? And Chris, this kind of just lends lends me to bring up mine now. And I think um the reason why, or part of the reason why that's happened is that um it was the stories that people were telling and getting into the media and normalizing it. So everybody knows a veteran. Everyone knows someone mm-hmm. struggling with mental illness. Everyone knows, you know, someone struggling from addiction. And having those stories told and show and and see that, you know, they're not um jumping out of windows. They're not, in fact, you know, the our one of our clients' vets is um their sole mission is to prevent suicide among uh among The veteran community. Um, And by them telling their story, Amber and Marcus Capone coming out and telling their story um, makes it relatable. Um, I think especially Rick Perry is a really good example. Rick Perry is as conservative as you get. (laughs) And he had a personal relationship with Marcus uh, Luttrell, um, who Mm. he saw, who was a soldier. He saw come back um, struggling with PTSD and he saw the, the effects that it had on him and saw the help that psychedelic assisted therapy gave him. Um, And, you know, he did this podcast. He was a a featured on PS 2023. He's very open about it and very open about, you know, his experience. But but I mean, it takes a long time for everyone in the world to have a personal experience to finally change their minds or to, you know, read something that makes them stand up and say, oh, my God, this could be me. This could be my husband, my my wife, my daughter. Um, You know, I think. Having those human sides to those stories, and having people like veterans—there's no one in the world we respect more than veterans, right? Like, and having them come out there, and I and I think they are so brave because not only do they fight for our country, but they're also willing to de- to to participate in these studies um, and to be really on the front lines of helping. You know, their work here is going to help a lot of people.
2: I, I just want to continue on that. Um, there's two things that I that have really blown my mind. We work with a not-for-profit organization called Reason for Hope. And they were able to get the state of Kentucky to commit $42 million from the opioid settlement fund to research the impact of Ibogaine or the use of Ibogaine to treat opioid use addiction. That blows my mind. Mm -hmm. Like that, that, Uh, a red state, even though it's got a Democratic governor and a Democratic governor, by the way, not in favor of this, but, you know, that the state has decided to invest money from the opioid settlement from Purdue Pharma to cure the addiction of this disease with a psychedelic. And that was uh, facilitated by General Martin Steele. And this is a former US Army General, retired, who is out there actively lobbying federal government and state governments on behalf of veterans to get them access to psychedelic therapy to treat their issues. And then we have a client called APA, which is the American Psychedelic Practitioners Association, which is led by former General Steve Zanakis. You know, if you think about it, and APA's job is to set the the standards for training therapists on how to give or psychedelic therapy. <laughs> they got two generals who are literally on the front lines of, of the psychedelic industry. Like, that's amazing. Like, I, 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 and, and it, it, it frustrates me that we haven't been able to get enough people to pay attention to the fact that you've got two former generals retired guys who are putting the second half of their career into the psychedelics industry i find that absolutely fascinating because you know if you if you are a general you automatically have respect in our society and these guys are putting their careers their reputations on the line to shape the conversation around psychedelic therapy that i think is absolutely amazing
4: and and it's not just kentucky too you know there there's other states that are investing in this as well arizona allocated five million dollars in its budget for for psychedelic research and and sue sicily and her team out here in, in scottsdale are going to be heading up a lot of that you know we're seeing um illinois michigan connecticut as other states that are also looking at you know how can we Use some of these opioid funds to actually work towards a cure, rather than just you know um, treatment centers. Like we, because you know we can't just prolong this. We got we we need to make fundamental changes to it. And it, it's it's very welcome to see states put skin in the game, um, rather than just like you know wait for wait for a, a company or an organization to to bring a solution and have that be you know ultimately what's going to take it. That's going to take a long time. But if there's po- private public partnerships that can help accelerate this, I'm all for it. And I think it's been great to see the momentum of that over this last year. And my hope is just like, you know, we keep seeing more states want to add that on, you know, Oregon um, opening up their market. And we're going to start seeing it, you know, going back to the normalization conversation. It's it's going to start out as a a tour hub, I'm sure vacation hub for, for people that want to go and experience. But that's going to, you know, have a trickle down effect where people are going to be like, well, okay. I didn't go crazy or in Oregon or the people I know that went there didn't go crazy on this. And it actually seems like it's helped them out a lot. Um, but, you know, that all, all that is really important stuff. And because like what Ann said, veterans do need help from this. And if we can find cures for this where, you know, we, we have anecdotal evidence of where they've gone outside of the U.S. to get this treatment and to, and to other and other countries in, in South and South American stuff to get this. And it's worked and it's been really powerful for them. Um, you know, we just, we just got to help those people that are the decision makers fully hear what it is that these people are saying. And, and I think the momentum's there and that's going to be, I think a big catalyst going into next year.
0: Hey, and
3: let's not forget Aaron Rodgers He's, he, he's, 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 he was out there. He was at, he was at, uh, he was at, uh, the, the psychedelics conference. He managed to make it through the whole thing without rupturing an Achilles. So I consider that a win. <laughs>
4: How is, oh. on Aaron Rodgers though? How is he able to just openly say he's taking all these illicit drugs and and not get suspended for any games? You know, there's a drug policy for the NFL. You know, he does
3: it. He does it in the off season outside the United States. <laughs> I mean, that's why. And,
1: uh, is there a test for for no? Yeah. So. Yeah.
3: And even if they tested him, they're not. They don't. They don't. They don't drug test in the off season.
4: I don't know. Double standards, NFL. Double standards. <laughs>
1: I think Good. it's also he's Aaron Rogers. Good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like I'm sure they would, yeah.
2: Well, and it, anyway. you know actually though he is indicative of not only athletes, but I think there is such um you know this this need of for people to either explore from a self-actualization perspective or to treat trauma and the, the current, you know, medical system just doesn't solve the problems. You know, the SSRIs out there, the benzodiazepines that are used to treat depression, anxiety, OCD, addiction, they don't solve the problem. They are like a band-aid on, on the underlying issue, whereas psychedelics can actually help uh, a patient with help, you know, really root out the underlying problem. Bring it to the fore and move through it and past it. Um, and that's I think why Aaron Rodgers talks about what he talks about. The other thing, though, was if you listened to Aaron's interview with Aubrey Marcus, you know, Aubrey Marcus talked about doing ayahuasca 42, 43 times. That actually concerns me, right? Like, I'm I'm that guy today. I'm like the negative Nelly dude. But like, you know, what the fuck do you need to do? any psychedelic in a healing paradigm. And I used air quotes for those who can't see on the podcast, like 42 times. Like, what are you trying to heal on the 38th time that you weren't able to address on the 25th time? Like that's not, who knows?
3: That's- I don't know who like it, it. It. I think that could, it could be completely valid, right? People have all sorts of deep seated trauma, Sometimes people can be "quote unquote" cured in you know one therapy session. Sometimes it's something that's ongoing that they need to continuously revisit in order to work them. And you mentioned SSRIs; people take SSRIs every day for their for their entire lives. If somebody needs right. to do psychedelic therapy in a in a healing or you know, clinical or healing environment multiple times over the period of years, like who are we to say that that's not you know that that's not efficacious for them?
1: Yeah, Lewis.
3: <laughs> okay. I, I'm wrong. No, I'm I mean wrong. look you're you're no and, and you I mean look I think it's it's you bring up a valid point, right? It's yeah. not it's it's not it's not unfair to question whether or not that's, you know, that that is that is appropriate or whether there may be abuse in 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 something like that. But I also think that there is, you know, that there that there is an argument to be made on the other side that if this truly is something that is healing and helpful, um, right? That's still probably better than taking SSRIs for the rest of your life. I, I well, totally, that I agree.
1: I remember um, I went to the Vets um, Gala uh, a couple of weeks back and having a conversation with a really high-ranking retired military um, gentleman. And he, you know, based, one of his comments was, well, we can't have everyone feeling great all the time. And I said, why? <laughs> and yeah, he God was like, <laughs> and I don't think he like he's necessarily used to having people. And he was lovely, but like people questioning a, like a, someone in that kind of environment and um you know he's like but you know it, it, it makes you like it doesn't mean you know you have to have these experiences in order to shape your life and make you the person you are and this and that and I'm like why well, I'm not saying just because you do it doesn't mean your life is puppies and unicorns like you know you're we're, we're making something that's available to people to help them through trauma and maybe make their life a little bit better. But his first question was like, why do we have to feel good all the time? Which I was like, that's concerning too. <laughs> so I don't know. I think that we're only at the tipping point for changing a lot of people's minds.
2: Oh, nice. Nice call back to Michael Pollan. Well done.
1: <laughs> and on that note, um, it's been fun podcasting with you guys this year. Thank you so much. Um, any any hot takes for 2024? And we have to end on a high note, Lewis.
2: Oh, I'll I'll start maps gets approved. Um, I think, I think, uh, end of Q2 early Q3 and first patients are dosed before the end of next year is my hot take. I think that, that, um, this is going to happen and it is going to open up a floodgate of new investment into the cannabis industry. Um, and all, I'm sorry, into the psychedelics industry and, I think that cannabis gets rescheduled um, on four twenty of next year. Uh, I'm sorry, and that we see a floodgate uh, again open and a tremendous amount of money go into the cannabis industry, and Joe Biden gets reelected. Wow! Um, That's how takes. How's that for <laughs> from kittens and, and unicorns, puppies right. and
3: unicorns? Tell them, Steve, Dave,
2: Chris.
1: Give us parties and uniforms. No,
3: I kidding. would agree. I'm going to agree with Lewis on uh, cannabis rescheduling. I think it is going to happen. Um, I will say I am uh, more skeptical than most about the DEA uh, going along with this, although I do think that they will, um, because I think the political pressure from the Biden administration is strong enough that the DEA administrator, who was appointed by President Biden, will wind up going along with with rescheduling. Um, I will disagree with Lewis on timing. I do not think this is going to happen on 420. Um, if I'm going to make a prediction on when rescheduling actually goes into effect, I'm going to say it would be sometime in October of 2024 because the the October surprise, well, it won't be a surprise because it'll all been announced, but it, this is, this is, this is all being driven by the Biden campaign. Uh, they have, there is a reason why the announcement, for rescheduling and pardons happened in October of uh 2022 uh it was because the 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 democratic political machinery uh believed that it would be good for them in the midterm elections um and i believe that the timeline of this is being worked so that rescheduling will end up happening fairly close to the presidential election because this president needs every issue he can possibly get to turn out and excite young voters who are in fairly record numbers for Democrat, not supportive of Biden. Um, and this is an issue that is very popular among young voters. So I, I believe this will probably happen later in the year. They want it as something that the president can run on in re Um, I do agree. This will likely lead to a wave of new investment and new capital coming into the cannabis industry. But I want to take the flip side here. If, this doesn't happen. If the DEA comes out and says, you know what, we're going to compromise. We're going to go to schedule two, which is a realistic possibility. Again, if I had to place money on it and I've given, you know, my shares in cannabis companies, I like kind of have, um, I think, I, I think that it will happen, but, or that, that schedule three will happen. But if the DEA doesn't go along with this or says they're going to schedule Two, 2024 is going to be an absolute bloodbath in the cannabis industry you are going to see brand name companies sold for parts uh, you're going to see whatever bankruptcy looks like in cannabis because they can't actually file for federal bankruptcy uh, you're going to see quite a bit of it um, it is going to be if if this year if we thought this This past year, 2023, was a rough one for cannabis capital markets. Like, just wait until we see what happens if the DEA comes out and says, we're not rescheduling or going to schedule two. Uh, 2024 will be a very, very, very
4: ugly year uh, for the cannabis industry.
1: Nick, you got to give us something good.
4: I'm going to go crazy. Uh, Well, I don't know if it's crazy, but uh, I think in a, a desperate move to attempt to position herself as more centrist and with it, with the people, Nikki Haley to differentiate yourself from, from Donald Trump will come out in favor of federal legalization of cannabis with allowing the States to come up with whatever their laws are. Wow. I think, uh, with Nancy Mace also being from South Carolina, that there could be some influence there uh, and she, she needs to figure out how does she show the left that she can be a little bit progressive on some things that, you know, that they do care about. And that, that's my hot take is I, I think Nikki Haley will, will come out in, in support of cannabis.
3: You think she's going to do that as part of the, in the as part of the primaries? She doesn't really need the left to get elected uh, she, in a Republican
4: primary. I could see it coming out in the primary because like, even, there's got to be some at, at a certain point, it's going to come, I think it's going to come down to her and Donald Trump and it, it's going to be Who's who's most electable when it comes to the general between the two of them, and I could see that being like her 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 sway her swaying play to try and do that. It's like, look, you know, because if we know that the DEA is probably going to reschedule to schedule three, you know, is she going to come out and be somebody that's going to have to immediately fight with the DEA and, and push back on all this progress that's been made there and, and grind more um, progress within the government to a halt? That's not going to be something that's going to endear her to a centrist or, or a left audience um and so I, I i could see it being a play do i have any other evidence beyond you know she's been mildly sympathetic to, to medical cannabis patients in the past and nancy mace is somebody that's been that's from her state that's also been you know pretty progressive on the cannabis issue that's about all i'm going off of but that's my nancy mace isn't saying. even going to get reelected. oh yeah like she, she, she. yeah <laughs>
3: But this all happened before the election. It's an interesting argument. Yeah. I could I could I could I could see it only because she's going to need a desperation play, um, because if she does emerge as the as the uh, as the alternative to Trump. Right. And I think that's probably the case. Right. She seems to be out- outpacing DeSantis there. She's going to need to do something desperate in order to to gain. But I mean, look, let's be realistic. Like. She's not going to beat Trump, um, and, and embrace, Trump and embrace. Trump is not going to be
2: the candidate. Trump is going to get convicted in, in one of these, these, When um, this is not a Trump podcast. Uh, I understand that. No, no, no. But I, but here's the thing. I think Trump does not end up being the candidate for some reason, whether he gets convicted or he has a heart attack, something is going to happen. He's not going to be the candidate. And I think you're right, Nick, Nikki, Nikki Haley is going to be the candidate for the Republicans. And then what you said makes complete sense. Um, and that he, she is going to come out and for full federal legalization and we will have the first female minority president in the history of the United States.
3: That's a hot okay. take. <laughs> <laughs> that is a hot take. The problem, Lewis, okay. is that is that if Trump gets gets convicted in any of these trials, it's gonna be after he's already the nominee.
2: If he gets convicted, just by, just by timing. The, hold on, a if he gets convicted in the in the Georgia trial, right, or the Jack Smith trial, he will not be able to run because he will be convicted. And I think it's the fifteenth. Is it the fifteenth amendment that says if you try to usurp, you know, to to uh, overturn the United States, you can't run for office. If he gets convicted, he, he's out. He cannot run for office a pretty novel theory we're, get, it's we're not, getting it's pro- not my <laughs> theory it's not my theory I, I trust me it's not my theory but it's he, they went after the civil war they in the 15th amendment it said if you were uh, if you took up arms or tried to overthrow the government you can't run for federal office i don't think this trump is going to be perceived as, as trying to that.
3: Yeah, yeah. I don't need. I don't either. I don't think it's going to be perceived as trying to overthrow the government. Yeah. It's going to be trying he, to the
2: October the, the the Jack Smith trial that's is completely That's why he's trying to fast that. track
1: it with the yeah. Supreme Court, yeah. right?
2: That's that's the Jack Smith trial is a hundred percent about that. But this but is a we weed and, an, and LSD. And LSD. We, yes, we need. We don't need hot my hot take. take. Yeah, no, you guys. No, no. Yes, we do. Yes, no, yeah, we hot do. go. We totally we need your hot take.
1: My hot take is that. Is Well, now I feel like I'm going to be a black cloud here, but I think it's going to be amazing that I, Louis, your hot take that the FDA will approve MDMA. I think it's going to be great, but I think there's going to be a lot of people who are like, oh my God. And then now what? Because it's not like they can, they're going to be flooding. They're going to be going to their doctors being like, I'm depressed. I have PTSD. I, and I would like, I would like access to this and they're not going to get it. And I think there's going to be a pretty big backlash as to, like, you know, like, how can you do this? And, you know, maybe it'll be good. It Our 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 healthcare system is nothing if not efficient, right?
2: So you're saying so MDMA is going to be the We Govi be, of next year?
1: It's going to be the what? We <laughs> the,
2: <laughs> the Yeah, you do. It's the drug that people, Ozempic. Oh, Oh, Ozempic!
1: Oh, uh, no, I mean, no, people can get their hands on ozempic very easily. And, you no, know, it's maybe, really and, hard. Well, and so well, and and people can get their hands on MDMA pretty easily, too, on on the illicit market. But I don't know. I think it's going to be like this big, huge like, oh, my God, we've worked all of this, all of this, you know, all this money's been spent. All of this advocacy work has been done. And now no one has access to it because we don't have enough therapists and we don't know how to charge for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
2: Hold on. <laughs> wait a second. Even though she wasn't planning on on being on the pod, she's on the pod. So, Emmeline, turn your mic on and give us your hot take. Oh gosh, my hot take. Ooh. Ah.
1: I don't know. I think that and this is going to be different from all of you guys, um because I, I agree a lot with with the hot takes here today. Um, But after attending the uh, Horizons Northwest Conference and having the topic be, uh, or so many topics just focused on the indigenous and how to create safe spaces for them within the community, I think that that's going to be a a real big push, a real big initiative for this upcoming year.
2: I think that's really spot on. That's terrific. And Emmeline for the win. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Positivity. (laughs)
3: Got you the wrong, pushing the wrong people on the, on uh, the microphone here. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing this too long to be all I know, I think, that's, <laughs> I think
1: That's right. I'll keep you guys um, in check. Emily, thank you for um, coming up with a really great hot take when Louis put you on the spot. Appreciate that. Of course. Louis. And thank
2: you for all the work that you've done this year yes. on behalf of yes. the whole show, yep. because without you, bars we could not have done this year and you know from from booking the guests to helping with scripts to doing all of the stuff and the back end to help make this show the success that it is Emmeline, thank you and um also thank you shay gunther um you've been with us almost since the beginning um, should have been since the beginning. We just didn't know about you because Chris didn't tell us about you. But thank you so much. Hey, I brought Shay to this yes. podcast. Yes. yes, you did, but you didn't bring it to him at the beginning. You brought it I like a year in. Here now. I, I didn't know you now. at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's my fault. Fine. <laughs> but Shay, thank you so much, man. Yeah. And wrap us up. <laughs> wait, thank one you guys. more thing before. Wait, wait, one more thing. I want. I want all of our listeners to know that KCSA is going to be launching a second podcast next year, not on the cannabis industry and not on the psychedelics industry. It's called alternatively speaking. And this will be on other alternative industries, starting with a focus on longevity. And we've got a an amazing roster of guests to start this off. Uh, and that show, is going to be hosted by Ann Donahoe and Phil Carlson. And there'll be swings with me and Nick every now and then. So now, and I will let you wrap up. Thank
1: you all. Another great host, Looking forward to a whole nother year of podcasting with you guys. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Happy holidays.
1: Happy holidays. I'm going to thank us. Big thanks to Lewis and Nick, Chris and Emmeline for a great um, chat on cannabis and psychedelics in 2023 and what's in store for 2024. Um, I think it's gonna be a really interesting space to watch. I hope you continue to listen. Um, and if you want to chat with us, find us on Twitter at the underscore green rush or on Instagram at the green rush underscore podcast, or drop us an email at greenrush at KCSA.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the green rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take Shay one take.